0: Hello, I'm Steve Feldman. Ulysses, the wanderer, the most human, the most complete of all heroes, husband, father, son, lover, farmer, soldier, pacifist, politician, inventor, and adventurer. It is a theme so overwhelming that I am almost afraid to treat it. And yet I, with my Dublin odyssey, will double that immortality. Yes, by God, there's a corpse that will dance for some time yet. So says James Joyce, or rather the version of James Joyce imagined by Tom Stoppard in his play Travesties. Of course, the Dublin odyssey he was talking about is the 1922 novel Ulysses, and that's what we'll be talking about for the next hour or so. Welcome to Tales of Braving Ulysses, a podcast on the Liquid Arts Podcast Network.
1: i calling you to kiss their white lace lips.
0: Thank you to Gino Brand, providing us with a little cream. Once again, my name is Steve Feldman, joined with Bob Perchant and Frank Beecher. And I'm speaking to you from Busan, South Korea. A few words about how this podcast came about. Several months ago, the team at Liquid Arts in Busan asked me if I would consider doing a podcast for their podcast network, devoted to discussing literature, writing. Well, I sat on that idea for several months until this winter, with some time on my hands, I found myself going back to a novel. I tried to read a couple times and put aside as is wont to happen, as we'll be discussing later. This time I managed to make it to the end of all 932 pages in my edition. Somewhere in the middle, uh, that podcast idea lying dormant under the winter snow began to thaw and sprout and blossom, and I thought, what better book to launch a book discussion podcast than James Joyce's Ulysses, that sprawling, complex, confounding astounding work called by some the greatest English novel of the 20th century. Think of this podcast as maybe a pilot episode, an experiment, much like this book we'll be talking about today. It can be called an experiment. If it goes well, we might continue this experiment with other books, other authors. Let's see how it goes. Who is this podcast for? Well, it's for people, of course, who've read Ulysses, sure, it's also for people who've given it a go and laid it aside or maybe hurled it aside for the time being. It's for people who maybe have read some Joyce but haven't yet had the gumption to take on Ulysses. It's for people who've simply heard of it. They're aware of this giant imposing masterwork, this Everest sp- uh, looming on the horizon. And they want to learn more about it. Or just anybody who's, discussed, who's interested in discussing literature reading, modernism. As you can see, I'm casting a pretty wide net. I do not want this to be a complex, scholarly, deep dive. I just kind of want it to be an informal chat like you might have at a bar with some buddies. Uh, Even though we're recording this at 1 p.m., I think it's a little too early to break out the Guinnesses. Uh, I'm hoping to demystify this book a little, though perhaps what we might be doing is adding to the mystique by this very project. Above all, I hope it's fun. It's fun for you to listen to as it will be for us to record. So who is this us I mentioned? With me are two friends I've known for almost as long as the 18 years I've lived in Korea. Two people I've worked with, written with, performed with, gotten arrested with. (laughs) Two of the sharpest literary minds in town. First, former literature professor at Dong-A University here in Busan, an outstanding poet, writer of several books of poetry, frequent contributor to liquid arts and numerous other artistic endeavors around town, and co-Korean translator with his wife, Mi Kyung, of Jane Austen's Persuasion and currently Sinclair Lewis's Main Street. Mr. Bob Perchin, Welcome, Bob. Thanks, Steve. And also with us, my former colleague, back in the days of yore, it seems, at uh, Doney University, outstanding writer of fiction and nonfiction, maker of several cheeky and provocative short films, man always ready to jump into a fray about literature and contribute his two cents, And his two cents are usually worth much more than that, I'd say, four or five cents at least. (laughs) Mr. Frank Beecher, welcome. Hi, Steve. Thanks. So, Ulysses. um, I recently finished reading this uh, about a month ago, late March, early April, uh, I believe, after two abortive attempts uh decades earlier. I think like a lot of people, I gave in around page a hundred, hundred and thirty, probably, you know, the Proteus episode, um, maybe the second um Bloom episode. Uh finally made it through uh this time. Um you know for me it's a book that has You know, as soon as you become really passionate about literature and books and reading, uh, you you tend to read about it, hear about it. Maybe you read uh, uh, one of Joyce's short stories in an anthology and there's notes about what else he's done and you hear about Ulysses. Maybe you see a fragment in an anthology and it's like, Three quarters of the pages footnotes, and you're like, "Wow, what is going on here?" Or maybe a teacher mentions it, so it's sort of hovering, like I said, looming, uh, a big wall that you have to deal with. Like you might consider Shakespeare, like every writer, every reader, just con- you have to deal with it through all the uh, allusions and and takeoffs and tributes. Uh, so I'd like. Y- both of you to talk about uh, your experience uh, reading it, what drew you to it. Why don't we start with uh, you,
2: Bob? Of course, I had heard about Ulysses. Uh, uh, I was an English major in college, and then I went to graduate school. And one of the professors there taught uh, a seminar in uh, Joyce uh, and particularly in Ulysses. And uh, I had already finished my credit work in grad school, but I decided to, to audit the course, sit in on it, because I knew it would uh, encourage me to read the book if other people in the class had read it. Why can't I keep up with it? So I don't have a copy of his syllabus. I know at that time we didn't try and do the whole book I don't think during the semester, uh, but we had certain, or he had, I should say, he had certain certain uh, episodes that he thought were the most important. You know, the first f- uh, f- three episodes introducing Stephen Dedalus, and then episode four introducing Leopold Bloom, and. Uh, then after that, I suppose some uh, some of the uh, Night Town episodes, and then, of course, the final episode, Molly Bloom's monologue, which is uh, uh, a classic in world literature, period, paragraph. Whatever you think about the rest of Ulysses, that monologue is remarkable. And uh, so uh, we were all in awe of that that kind of writing, okay. At the time I was kind of secretly wanting to be a writer myself, but I was pretending that I was going to be a professor or some crazy dream like that. (laughs) And uh, the professor was nice enough to identify certain passages that were probably too boring for graduate students who, uh, who were in a hurry, like episode 17. For example, is not uh, you know uh, Stephen and Bloom in the kitchen, if you remember that. Is yeah. that episode 17?
0: I believe so. The Catechism. It's like it's written in the form of a question, Socratic question dialogue. Answer, right? Yeah. Well,
2: there's the questions and then answers. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, Bloom like tea, you know, and then the answer. You know, what kind of tea? I kind of like that one.
0: For me, oh, the God. one before that, uh, the Eumaeus episode where they're at the uh, uh little restaurant after night town was oh okay where i ju- i wanted to yeah, yeah i yeah. wanted to rip the book in half cuz <laughs> okay the prose is intentionally bad yeah after this slog of night town and the the maternity hospital yeah okay which are two of the most difficult ambitious challenging and just lengthy And then you get to this prose that's just circumlocuitous and just errors and clumsy. And you know he's doing it for a reason. There's a point to everything. I'm like, oh, after making it through these two previous episodes, can you maybe something like, Araby describing Mangan's sister, hair swinging back and forth, the soft rope of her hair. (laughs) Oh, that was that beautiful. Remember, remember when you used to do that, Jimmy? You know, (laughs) a little little (laughs) that, you know. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So if you're going through it straight through, there are going to be, you know, hacking through the forest with a machete kind of moments. Uh, So Frank, what about you? You also, I understand, uh, had a Sort of first experience in an academic setting, right with a teacher?
1: That's it yeah, uh, similar to Bob's, and um, I think that was very fortunate. If I had nowhere to start, no bearings, I think I might have been a you know lost at sea kind of thing. Um, I had a course first in Yeats and Joyce, so um, the two luminaries, I guess, of Irish literature in many ways. And um, I already loved Yeats. Joyce, I knew very little about. I knew that story, Araby, and I loved it also. And Mangan's sister, there's a reference to Mangan in, uh, I picked it up. I'd, lo- I'd forgotten about yeah. it, but there's a reference to Mangan in, and about his sister too, in, um, in, in Ulysses. So, so we, we did that, and then I took a second course only um, by the same guy um, on Ulysses and he was so infectious. His enthusiasm was just irresistible. I mean, he just made it sound so fun, and he was full of those um, those stories. For example, uh, one of the writers uh, that I admire the most is William Faulkner, and he he talked about how Faulkner, when he was young and virtually penniless, and he worked, you know, a, a humdrum job, I think, as a nighttime security guard somewhere or something. He was. Saving up his money to go to Paris and see his literary hero, James Joyce. And, you know, he finally made it across the Atlantic and, you know, heard that Joyce was holding court in a restaurant and walked over there and just saw him through the window and chickened out, turned around. <laughs> I can't. And never went in, never met the guy. So after saving his money for a couple of years, um, I, I thought that was a beautiful story, and there's, he had tons of stories like that. He could tell three stories like that in one class. So by the end of it, I was just raring to read the book. And like, as in Bob's case, we, we didn't go through, we went through certain parts of the book, mm-hmm. uh, excerpts, but we didn't read the whole novel. And I think he did that on purpose to sort of, you know, hey, I, I want to read this thing.
0: No, now, I know you've uh, reread it, often, uh, so do you go back to certain episodes or do you plow through it beginning
1: to end now or whatever
0: takes your m- fancy at the time?
1: When I read it, I try to read it from beginning to end. I I was trying to do like an annual pilgrimage, uh, which is a tradition more honored in the breach than the observance, but but... <laughs> Well,
0: your Hamlet quote is apropos because uh, there's a lot of uh, references, allusions, like direct discussion of Hamlet in this uh, in this novel. Stephen Dedalus has this whole theory of Shakespeare related to Hamlet. So, you know, it, it leads to the question: How much foreknowledge do you need uh, to read this novel? Because uh, James Joyce, he's, he's trying to encompass only you know, everything about human history, language, literature, culture, uh, religion, science, physiology. Uh, he had this uh, very formal Jesuit education uh, and was, was a genius. And he tried to make this a book about everything uh, while it being about something ultra-specific. So how much do you need to know? Should you go back and reread The
2: Odyssey? Well, I, I think you, first of all, uh, before you reread The Odyssey, you ought to read it first <laughs> and reread it later. A lot of people haven't read it. Right. Okay. And uh, definitely you have to you have to sit down and read a summary of what The Odyssey is all about or some condensed version. Pick up your old classic comic book, maybe of the Odyssey or whatever. But yeah, I had but a get middle to the school th- version that
0: was, I remember very clearly, mm. and it really stuck in my mind. I've never read the actual Homer epic poem. so, But I, I'm familiar with, of course, Scylla and Charybdis and the Cyclops and the Sirens. That's something that almost becomes, you know. If you learn anything about Greek mythology, you'll have at least some of those episodes. Like, oh yeah, I
1: know that. I know that. Right. But the core of the story, right? I think the uh, the Homer, uh, sorry, the Homer poem is, is just the story of this guy who's been gone for what is it twenty years, I think ten years ten. at the war, then and ten, ten years yeah, traveling, to ten, ten years right. coming back. So twenty years, and his son Telemachus is sort of, you know, uh, holding the fort. And while his mom, uh, you know, is, is, is refusing the suitors and who are eating at, you know, uh, at Ulysses' table while he's gone. And they all want to marry her. And she says, I'll pick one of you guys when I'm done, uh, you know, knitting this thing or making, you know. Um. And, and she never, at night she rips it up again. So she starts again in the morning. So she's the faithful, long-suffering wife. And Telemachus is the son who's, like, holding the fort. And, and uh, that's kind of, in many ways, turned on its head, because Molly Bloom, as Penelope, not is so the... Not, not, not faithful. She's not faithful.
2: She's not patient, no. <laughs> <laughs> She's not patient Penelope. No. So, so in many ways, the, I think the, Joyce's
1: book turns Homer's odyssey on its, you know... It's, it changes a lot of it put it that way but it is the story of a wandering hero
0: yeah so I was thinking there might be a few listeners out there who well let's assume there are a few listeners out there period okay (laughs) let's assume (laughs) there are a few listeners out there that uh, maybe don't know much about this uh, novel Uh, you tell them at the bar Uh, you're reading Ulysses and they say oh what's that a biography of Ulysses S. Grant Uh tell me tell me about that Um, if you had to describe it in
2: 20 seconds uh, what would you say it's a long book about one day where? in Dublin Ireland uh, June 16th 1904 Mm. and uh, everything happens And so it follows Uh, this
1: guy named uh, Ulysses
0: going around uh, Dublin.
1: Well, it's really the. There are two main characters in this strange book. There's a younger who I guess is the Telemachus, is who's Stephen Dedalus, and the book opens with him, introduces us to him, and then just completely breaks away from him. And for the rest of the book, uh, we until the very end, when uh, when the Molly Bloom soliloquy, you know, we're treated to that. Then it's we follow um, Leopold Bloom, who's the second main character. So it's a day in the life of those two guys, right? Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Now, uh, so you have a story set in Dublin, and it parallels or mirrors in many ways, although it subverts them, as you said, uh, in many ways of uh, Homer's uh, The Odyssey. Now... About eight years after this book was published, in 1922, James Joyce, uh, in a conversation with his friend, made this, uh, it's called the schema, or schematics, like a chart of each episode and which uh, episode it uh, matches with in the Odyssey, in addition to sort of the uh, narrative style of that particular episode, the controlling uh, symbol Uh, Each episode has a bodily function that it focuses on. So a whole chart sort of Mm -hmm. explaining this because James Joyce was just shocked that people were reading this and they weren't picking (laughs) up on that, well, when Bloom gestures with his cigar, he's clearly, you know, stabbing the Cyclops in the eye. Don't, come on, people. Uh, And so he made this uh, uh, schema to sort of help people out. And it's usually included with a uh, m- in a foreword or introduction of any episode uh, or any uh, edition of the novel you care to pick up uh, or, yeah, I'm sure you can find it on the internet. How important is it to understanding each episode that you know, okay, this is Sirens, uh, this is Lestragonians, this is Circe, um, this is... Wandering uh, proteus. rocks, uh, right wandering right rocks. Um, is that important?
1: Well, I think it a- it adds a lot to uh, to the because co- it gives you bearings. It's hard to read through this book if you have no bearings. Like I said, you're kind mm-hmm. of a you know storm tossed cork on the top of the sea. You don't know where you're going. Uh, whereas yeah, with these schemata, it's helpful. The colors he puts colors in there. Music's important, and there's a lot of stuff. Is it?
0: It's almost ridiculous to talk about spoilers in a book like this. <laughs> 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 but could you say you're perhaps depriving yourself of that sort of puzzle-solving uh, pleasure? Like, oh, I get that. That's uh, This is sirens because it's all about music in this chapter and they're singing. And uh, is it? Does it detract from the experience to know that? Ahead of time, because I don't think it does.
1: Well, if I guess if you knew, you you, you could start it with the, the nineteen, you know, Homeric chapters. But I, it doesn't actually match. I think there's seventeen in Homer, and there's there there are nineteen in Ulysses. Um, so, my there's, prefer- so, so there's more in right, Ulysses. and they're not in the same order or something right. like that, right? So, uh, but knowing what the the Odyssey ones are and trying to match them up, yeah. That, I imagine that would be interesting. Our, in the introduction
0: of my edition, uh, the writer says, look, you don't eat a delicious meal and say, well, I need to know the recipe, mm-hmm. or I won't really enjoy it. Nobody says that, right? You don't need to know the recipe. Uh, but on the other hand, I like to know what I'm eating, right? <laughs> right? Like if you're eating a sort of a big rice mixture, I like to know is this uh, jambalaya, or is this chicken biryani, or is this uh, uh, is this uh, shrimp fried rice? Uh-huh. Right. So if you have no bearings at all, uh, like you said, you're you're sort of a tempest tossed. Yeah. And what is this thing?
1: Yeah. And, and and to this day, I don't know what UP up is all about. I mean.
2: Oh yeah. So, yeah. so
1: somebody gets his knickers in a, in a bunch over this thing, and mm-hmm. and even Molly at the end, she mentions it in her soliloquy. It's supposed to be a big deal, really offensive that you say "up." Up. Is it "up" like you go to the bathroom standing up? What is it? I, don't, I have no idea what it is, and I, I've never been told. Yeah, you'll quickly find out there are a huge number
0: of things like that, little uh, repeated references that. Are just remain enigmatic, and there are several theories, but it's all left blurry. You know, it's one of his themes, really, that that language has its limits, and you can never really have a set, defined meaning of anything. Let's talk about, you know, this is a book we've all read, and you know, just favorite bits. Or least favorite bits? I've always talked about my uh, least favorite bit, the uh, uh, Stephen and Leopold at the uh, the restaurant. What about your least favorite? Or we can eschew that and just go right to uh, favorite
2: bits. What stands out for you? Well, for me, uh, my favorite episode, let's just say it is the last episode, okay? Molly Bloom's monologue. But... Uh, within the the story, say, of Leopold Bloom, the episode that I liked the most was uh, it's the Nausicaa episode, and Leopold Bloom is watching the girls on the beach, Uh, Gertie McDowell, Sissy Caffrey, and uh, Evie Boardman. I was just looking at it the other day, so I remembered that stuff. And uh, at any rate... Bloom's very interested in these young women and uh, especially the Gertie McDowell girl. The other girls are there with their uh, little brothers or something like that. At any rate, because of the fireworks going on down the beach, they leave her and she's just leaning against a rock on the beach. Bloom is uh, watching her. Okay. Uh, what's, what's the word when you... When you Ogling? No, ogling is is the proper word. What's the the uh, uh eavesdropping? No, no, no. You know, as uh, spying. Uh, when you're when you're looking at a woman, uh, and you're not supposed to be leering all the time. Leering, I, Le- keeping, no. calming. It'll, it'll, it'll come <laughs> to me. At any rate, Gertie McDowell's sitting there, okay, uh, leaning against a rock the the r- skyrockets are going up, she leans back a little bit more, a little bit more, and as she, she leans back, she skirt. lifts her leg, okay, and uh, Bloom is gets excited at as this is happening, and he starts playing with himself, uh, with his hand in his pocket, and does the the whole routine so to speak, ejaculates and so forth as the skyrockets are blasting off, mm-hmm. and. Uh, my favorite part is when she uh she gets up she stands up from the rock and she starts walking down to the beach and it's obviously that as bloom said she's lame <laughs> my <laughs> god okay and i love that episode because it's, it's undercuts uh the entire uh experience that Bloom himself was having. And as I, uh, I, I'm gonna say something kind of weird here, but uh, do you remember the movie, The Hustler? Paul Newman? Paul Paul Newman. Newman?
0: Jackie Gleason.
2: Okay, Jackie Gleason. Do you remember in that movie, uh, Fast Eddie is is sitting in the uh, bus station luncheonette area and he sees a girl? And he's trying to pick her up. He's talking to her. He's flirting with her, but not getting very far. Ultimately, he will have an affair with her. But at this moment, he fails to seduce her. And she stands up and she walks away and she has a limp. <laughs> mm. Okay. Smart ass Hollywood
0: screenwriter, mm-hmm. Ike. No, actually, I, read I, ch- you
2: I checked it and it's in the novel. Okay, I have a copy of the novel, and I checked it. It's in the novel. It really happens. The novel written was a written. The novel was written by a guy named Walter Tevis, okay, who taught creative writing at Ohio University, where I was a grad student. I knew him a little bit. Oh wow. Okay, and even though he wrote about uh, uh, stuff like the hustler, he was deep into James Joyce, and I always wondered if he picked up. Uh, that limp idea from the Gertie McDowell oh, episode. Oh, he must have. Yeah. Okay. I always wondered about that. The
0: In that scene, does she realize that Bloom has masturbated?
2: No. I would say she knows he's watching yeah. her yeah. She very, says, she says very right, carefully. Right, you know. Okay. Yeah. She knows he's staring at her. Yeah. Now, uh, this might be a good time to mention
0: that Ulysses is a famously banned book. Uh, soon yeah. after it came out, nineteen twenty-three, it was declared obscene uh, in the U.S. Uh, partly because of that scene, uh, also the Molly Bloom final episode is very, very sexually frank. Um, Nighttown, Nighttown is full of full of whores. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah. yeah, it was, I believe, nineteen. 30 or 32 where uh, an appeals court I believe uh, the judge thought that the idea of reading it like you would read Hustler magazine is like absolutely absurd and that it's a a very frank honest depiction of of human sexuality and from that point on it was legal to purchase in
2: the United States there's a funny story about the uh, uh... banning of the book, okay, the book was banned in the U.S. Random House wanted to publish it, okay, and so they made a deal with Joyce to publish the American edition, but they wanted to get it uh, legal before they actually published it, so they planted a copy on a ship so that the customs would find it, okay, the customs people would find it, they would uh, impound it, and then Random House could take them to court and finally decide whether the book should be banned or not, whether it was obscene literature or not. And they won the case, and then they went ahead and published it. Right. So, but that's a funny story about they planted the book. They wanted the book to be found okay, as contraband. That's another thing about the book that I think puts people off
1: or just intimidates them into not trying it. Because they think it's, you know, it's this hyper serious, you know, monumental, unreadable, opaque, you know, uh, opus where, uh, in fact, it's incredibly funny. There's an awful lot of humor in there, and there is a lot of sex. So if you want, if you like sex and humor, that book has it in spades. I mean, (laughs) there's a lot of that stuff in the book. Frank, what's your favorite I was say, I, I was gonna say Wandering Rocks, but that's the Gertie McDowell, and I was thinking, oh yeah, oh, okay, so Nausicaa oh yeah, okay. But, but like I said, <laughs> we talked. So about we're talking before. about the same episode. We're talking basically. about the same oh, episode. Okay. That's the one I was going to say, and uh, now I've, I'm wondering which one is Wandering Rocks. See, Wandering we... Rocks was
0: uh, it was like 32 short films about Dublin, where it we get little snapshots of various oh, okay, places and right. mm-hmm. people. It departs from. Leopold. Actually, I like that
1: one too. That's when the the viceroy uh, passes by, and the uh, there's a pipe that vomits, (laughs) vomits up like sewage, uh, in you know, as acclamation of the viceroy. So this is political commentary on on England being in. in Ireland, I guess. Yeah, that was good too, but definitely that one—the one you said, the the Gertie McDowell one—I thought was hilarious. And beautifully constructed, the way it builds and builds, and the release yeah. at the end—it's yeah. almost like a symphony, you know, with yeah. the, the fireworks and everything—is
2: great. Yeah. Yeah. Supposedly, uh, supposedly, Bloom ejaculates at the moment. The, that the, the rocket. The one Roman candle, whatever, yeah. goes off. Boom. Right. Yeah. Okay. And that, that's actually kind of cheap. Fiction. You know, if I wrote that, I'd be too embarrassed to, you know, actually submit it for publication. It'd be so obvious. But the way Joyce does it, okay, is just, uh, first of all, it's kind of groundbreaking. Okay. And, uh, in fact, one more comment about th- that episode. That, uh, that episode was the last one to be published in the, in the little review in the United States. Right, it was Be- serialized. Was serialized in Little Review, and finally the uh, post office people were tipped off that the Little Review was was sending smutty ma- material through the mail. So they were uh, those copies were seized and burned, I think. And no, s- no more Ulysses was published serially in the U.S. after. Is that. Is it
0: the same episode where he has to fart really badly and he waits for the? Uh, uh, tram uh, to go by, and so it will cover up the uh, sound.
1: I don't think uh, Do you know what I'm talking that, that about? Is, isn't that the end? No, that's the end of an episode. That right. might, that's the very end of an episode, and you get the long, you know, the, vroom, 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 <laughs> vroom, the P, yeah. F, and R, and T, and it's right. the sound that <laughs> you know, a yeah, fart the, would make. So that's, that's the very last word of the. But, think, it's not, not but it's not that episode.
2: That might even be Molly Bloom. She breaks she, wind. She does break wind. She yeah. breaks <laughs> wind in the monologue, and I can't remember book here. But uh, actually, Steve, to get back to your question about whether it's a good idea to look at all of the schema before you read yep. the novel, outside of really knowing the the story of the Odyssey, outside of that, I don't think you need. Any of that f- on a first reading, maybe on a third reading or a fourth reading, it might start to bring the novel together artistically, okay, in a new critical sort of sense. Yes. Where, okay, where the text itself uh, is the work of art. And as Joyce said, the artist steps back and pares his fingernails.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of readers are blown away by the final episode Molly Bloom's uh, soliloquy uh, it's what you're left with uh, the ending of the novel is so beautiful and affirmative to uh, life uh, and it, it just leaves you so optimistic uh, after all, all this verbiage you've, uh, you've waded through. Actually, in my hometown near Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, Amherst College, there's a, a bathroom in some old uh, classroom building. That's the Molly Bro- Bloom bathroom. And the text of, I'm not sure if it's the entire text, probably not, but uh, from the, all the walls and the ceiling are just uh, written with the text from uh, Molly Bloom's soliloquy, and like over in one corner um, in one of the bathroom stalls, there's the final words like, Yes, I will. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I remember making out with a girlfriend in that, in the Mo- Molly Bloom wow.
2: bathroom. So. That was a ladies' room? Molly Bloom bathroom? It was a ladies' room?
0: Yeah, I don't remember <laughs> if it was, a, it was a men's
2: room or a women's room. It must have been a women's room. Oh, uh, That's uh, interesting to know that the Molly Bloom monologue was written. Uh, one of my favorite episodes is, uh, I guess, it's
0: identified as the Aeolus. Oh, the journalists? Uh, the newspaper hmm, office. Newspaper. Uh-huh. And the fact that this ties in with Aeolus episode is itself a great joke, right? Uh, In the Odyssey, uh, the god of the winds gives Ulysses the bag Mm -hmm. so he can control the wind and get home. And it's one of his men, right, who opens the bag and all hell breaks loose and the ship gets blown far, far off course. And the joke is, of course, that uh, all these uh, journalists are full of shit and they're full of wind they're windy, air, uh, they're yeah, full right. of hot air. And uh, its sort of uh, the whole piece sort of you know mocks the journalistic conventions of, the, of that day. Um, and the text is broken up with headlines, headlines of just sort of random inconsequential bullshit but with you know typically you know, exaggeratedly dramatic or heroic headlines Mm -hmm. um, I I found that chapter uh, uh, very enjoyable Uh, I know uh, Bob when I told you I was reading this you mentioned uh, it's a great novel to listen to a recording of uh, one person or several people a team of people reading it and I thought that chapter would be great to listen to Uh, I have not uh, listen to any uh, recorded versions but uh, I know Frank you have uh, Bob you, you've listened
2: uh? I have a set of discs in yeah. fact CDs with so the uh, entire Ulysses yes yeah, so can you
0: talk it. about like how, how that uh, aided your uh, enjoyment or understanding of the, of the novel to actually listen to it
1: Uh, I, I have an Audible, which is the, mm-hmm. you know, the spoken book version of Amazon, and I, so I have an, um, uh, a spoken book, an audio book version, and I like to, I've listened to it, just listening to it one time, and it wasn't as good as reading it, but then I, this last time, I listened as I read, and I thought that was pretty awesome. I, I really enjoyed that. um only problem was I had two different editions. <laughs> I had the original edition in the spoken version and, and a later edition, so there were some inconsistencies. But yeah, the voices were great. Uh, that particular chapter, you know, for example, um, Steve Feldman returns from his voyages. <laughs> uh, hey guys, sorry, I had to take a piss. You know, <laughs> then that would be the small print under, right? So yeah, that was really well done. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Molly bit at the very end was great. Um, yeah, it, it was just, a, but there was only one actor, uh, Jim Norton, I guess is his name, and he, he does different voices, so he sounds like more than one guy, but uh, he read all the male parts, and at the end...
0: Well, the Nighttown episode, or uh, corresponding with Circe, right. uh, is written in the form of a play script, mm-hmm. And so uh, it would be natural for doing all kinds of different voices, uh,
1: hundreds, hundreds of characters. He reads the episode. stage directions to that, too. And he'll say, for example, uh, Leopold Bloom, you know, as you see in a play, mm-hmm. the name of the character about to speak, and then he'll read the stage directions, um, turns to the right and smiles. And, and then he'll, he'll take the, the voice. So he does everything when he reads that. Listening to it like you would a play, you might miss some of that. I guess because if it's if it's not visual, then you don't know what right. the right. people are doing. Yeah. Stage
0: directions are, are right. very lengthy and yeah. part of the whole effect. I've read that uh, he wrote that uh, first draft, and very near to the end of the whole project, he went back and decided to make sure that that episode because it's the last episode of um, before the, uh, the uh, Ithaca chapters when mm-hmm. U- Ulysses returns home. He wants to encapsulate every encounter, every event, every uh, uh, character that's been mentioned in the whole novel up to this point. It is the lengthiest episode mm-hmm. of the book, uh, and it <coughs> becomes just, uh, 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 just a hallucinogenic uh mind fuck really it's <laughs> mm, it's crazy he imagines himself pregnant, giving birth and uh um, you know all sorts of deities are coming out of the sky and uh he becomes God basically uh yeah, so uh, I would love to see that uh I'd love to hear that uh read out loud it must
1: be quite the experience. There's a movie of it. I've never seen it, but it's like a 60-hour movie of the book, right? Uh,
0: so, really? Yeah. Ama- yes. I 60 I,
1: hours? Really?
0: No, I think it, it's a normal length. No,
1: I, I've read that there's like a 59-or-something-hour movie of this, of this book. Uh, there's a 1967
0: movie.
2: Which uh, I saw when I was a uh, college student before I had read Ulysses yeah. and thought it was kind of boring.
0: It was rated X when it came out. <laughs> I got banned from some film festivals. Uh, wow! I don't believe it was sixty hours, though. I there's really, unless there's another project yeah, you're I think referring
1: it's, to. Uh, there's a si- 1954 film, which is you know
0: standard. So there's more than one filmed version of, of the several. most unfilmable book ever. Well be, ever. be careful
2: the n- there's a 1954 movie called Ulysses starring Kirk Douglas. Oh okay so
1: that's different. Okay, that's, about so you. That's, 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 that's just one of those. That's the Odyssey things. right? Or yeah, well,
2: uh, yeah you know that's MGM's version of it or right, whatever right, you right. want to say but speaking of, of that but uh, w- one way to describe the oh, the uh, Nighttown uh, episode is is it's a pure phantasmagoria. Right. A phantasmagoria it's is just be, right. a series of changing images that have almost no connection with each other. Dream kind of sequence. And are, are, were you saying that uh, Joyce put it in dialogue form at the end? No, the whole episode is a play script. I know, yeah. but, but what did he decide from the very beginning that he was going to identify the speaker uh, as far of, as I know. of each No, one? I I, think
0: he the, the format was the same. He just went to and made it a lot more elaborate uh-huh. and uh, uh, folding in everything that, that had come before it, yeah. as, as far yeah. as I know. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, filming a book like Ulysses is of course impossible unless it becomes a book or a movie about writing it itself and you have James Joyce like in in the movie, it would seem to me. It sort of makes me think of uh uh that David Cronenberg version of Naked Lunch. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, right. William oh, Burroughs. Yeah. They filmed Naked Lunch, <laughs> but it's But it was great. It was pretty good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's it's partly Naked Lunch. It's partly uh, the story of William Burroughs writing Naked Lunch, and it adds mm-hmm. some stuff from Burroughs' other works, like Exterminator. Um, and, you know, I think approach like that would work with Ulysses, because, you know, you mentioned that this work is very funny, and ultimately it's very warm and humane and beautiful. But at the same time, you know, I, I, maybe an analogy... Uh, that I like to use is it's like the sun is shining on you when you're reading this but often that sun will go behind the clouds and that cloud is in a magnificent cloud in the shape of James Joyce's head mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you sort of s- are inevitably for me stop considering these people's lives Steven and Leo and Molly and you're just inside the uh, enormous intellect of of James Joyce, and it becomes about himself as an artist. It it sort of becomes... You're considering the monument of the book itself and not so much about
1: the people. Uh, So what you're saying is that the the way it's written obscures the story that it's telling. I think
0: it... uh, For me, it did. Uh-huh. And I'm sure you know. Upon rereading it, the the um, the structure, the scaffolding, will fall away. I mean, what no other book uh, demands rereading than great more than mm-hmm. Ulysses, of course. So uh, you've reread it a
1: number of times. And I'm sure you know that it I gets better. I like that better. scaffolding. It does get better. And for example, you mentioned the. Uh, the question-and-answer format at the end, um, the kitchen table in in his house um, that he has to break into at the end because he lost his key um, or forgot his key. So he, um, yeah, this is the omniscient narrator, I think, done to the nth degree. You know, there's a a crime uh, novel writer, who I like very much, uh, Elmore Leonard. And he was asked sure. in, a, in an mm-hmm. interview, you know, how do you write such catchy, great prose? And he said, you know, the parts that people skip, I leave those out. And <laughs> James Joyce does the opposite. He, in that book, he puts them and adds puts them in and adds to them to the nth degree. He just just adds and adds and adds and he'll tell you how many cubic meters <laughs> of water flow through the the Dublin, you know, waste dis water waste disposal system or something. Right, I it, remember that. I mean yeah. he just he, you know, <laughs> you'll know the whole engineering framework of the city by the time you're done. And you know, yeah, it can seem tiresome, but I I don't know. For me, I I just got a clearer picture of it.
0: I don't necessarily mean that, you know, I'm forgetting about Leopold Bloom and his life and his worries and his concerns. That's not necessarily a bad thing, you know. Uh, The uh, Oxen of the Sun episode, which is in the maternity ward, Mm. where uh, the prose... Is split into nine different uh, styles, representing the gestation or development of the entire English language, sort of uh, as a metaphor for the gestation of the fetus in the womb, Uh, and the prose goes from like you know Anglo-Saxon to uh, Elizabethan English to various forms of you know. 18th century, 19th century prose sort of imitating or parodying uh, some novelists. Some are sort of not very well known today. uh, But it's certainly, when you're reading that, I'm not really thinking about, you know, Leopold Bloom going to the hospital to visit this woman who's having a very difficult delivery. And he's sort of shocked at the doctor's just getting drunk and making jokes about, uh, like, uh, a birth control, for example, and I'm just sort of lost in the edifice of this monstrous ambition of what he's trying to do there, and it's amazing, uh, and I'm I'm in awe, uh, but I, like I said, I've I've sort of lost sight of the humanity there. And again, on a rereading, it might come through a little more clearly. So again, it's like the sun going behind a a beautiful cloud, and I'm I'm thinking about the cloud. But as I said, you know, Molly Bloom, the sun comes out and it's shining, and you're just bathed in in warmth and in radiance. Uh, So I I I think that's the nature of the novel. the modernist period where people were taking chances with form and structure. And uh, it it becomes more about James Joyce as an artist than about these people that he's imagined. Uh, And that's not, you can view it as a flaw, but it's just just
1: what this novel is. Mm -hmm. I think it's meant to be reread so that, you know, it's like you, you see a picture with a lot of dots in it and it looks like a forest, but really there's something else in the picture and you keep staring at it until you see it and finally you see it. And once you've seen it, then you can only see that, right? So it takes a while, I think, to, you know, but eventually uh, you, you'll see the humanity. And for me, something else about humanity is um, I find Leopold Bloom uh, an unbelievably um, touching, you know, his story, his father committing suicide, mm. losing his infant son. And yes. because he lost his infant son, he hasn't been able to compl- have a complete sexual relation with his wife, whom he knows is cheating on him. In fact, imagines that it, you know, she's banging a lot more guys than she's actually doing, but she is still you know, unfaithful, mm-hmm. and it turns him on. He, the, the, there's something really, he's punishing himself. There's something really, really, there's a lot of pathos in the story, I thought.
2: And: Yeah well, if you're talking uh, Steve, you were talking about the sort of composition by accretion, that he was adding more and more and more. That is, you know in many ways, that's kind of an uh, anti-modernist or maybe even post-modernist way of writing, because if you look at Hemingway or Eliot, both of them were preached taking away, reducing. You know, Eliot g- had to give the, the manuscript of the Wasteland to Ezra Pound, okay, and Pound ripped about, I don't know, about seventy or eighty percent of the damn thing, I can't remember how much, and send it back to Eliot. It was, you know, uh, uh, a major poem produced by taking away, taking away, and Hemingway was preaching very much the same thing, uh, at least through the 20s, okay, and Sun also rises for sure, and, and there, there, but maybe uh, Joyce had already gone through that with uh, the Dubliners, which is an extremely spare right. collection of short stories. Those, those stories are stripped down you know, to their very, very frames, beautifully so. So is the portrait of the artist. And portrait of artists, too, yeah.
0: Yeah, I've I've read some criticism saying that, of course, this is a hallmark of modernism, Mm -hmm. um, but it really sort of looks to the future in a very postmodern way. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Mm -hmm. sort of catchphrases that I like uh, to use, like modernism... Uh, modernists have lost faith in human civilization, but they still have faith in art. Uh, whereas postmodernism right. not only has lost faith in civilization, but they've lost faith in art itself. So it's the art that sort of deconstructs or decenters itself. And this text, sort of, certainly in terms of language, suggests that communication is difficult, if not impossible. Uh Of course, the idea that you know Ireland is English is the language of the usurper, so the English taking over the native language and so that's in there and it, it sort of mocks itself as uh, the idea that only art matters, and you, you can sort of see that postmodern attitude that well, maybe art too is.
1: Talks Not really going to work. Mm-hmm. I like his bit where he says the the, the cracked, looking glass of a serv- uh, of a servant being a symbol of Irish art. Yeah. 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 you know the woman What's who comes to right. deliver the milk, and uh, exactly yeah. <laughs> that's a famous <laughs> yeah. line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. to The line. cracked mirror of a servant.
0: A lot of those f- quotes that you hear, like history is a nightmare from which
1: I'm trying to awake. Mm-hmm. That's uh, basically Joseph
0: in the, the first that. chapter, right? when the he meets Mr.
1: D.C., he says that to the, uh, the headmaster of his school, yeah. where he the teaches us, yeah, he's a right? right, 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 right. right. Mm-hmm. And he's being lectured to by this ignorant, you know, older man and pompous sort of... You know, we've, we've mentioned Dubliners and Portrait of the Artist.
0: Just playing a, a thought experiment, like writing this book with the same characters and the same episodes, but stylistically... He's just going to write kind of conventional prose, like in *Dubliners*. Did you find yourself wishing for that at some point? Like the the chapter that I hated, the, uh, the Eumaeus episode. Like, oh, I kind of want the faintly falling snow from *The Dead*. You know, mm-hmm. something a, a little more mm-hmm. conventional. If he had done that, is it still *Ulysses*? Is it could it still be a classic, or is would that be just Forty percent of what we have—it's kind of a ridiculous "what if" question, but
2: well, Joyce kind of pastiches that idea in the uh, Nausicaa episode again. That is written in the language of uh, romance, uh, ro- romantic fiction. Yes, right. the the uh, sun, the sand, and everything else is described in these. Uh, clichés, okay, it's cliché upon cliché upon cliché. And that's exactly what the modernists were trying to escape. Clichés of 19th century prose, okay, even Dickens, but the the lesser-known writers that we've completely forgotten about.
0: Right, yeah. Okay, I mean, there are
2: a lot of writers that we don't know anything about, with whom Joyce was familiar and felt nothing but contempt. Yeah, so so in some ways, we don't know what he's mocking. It's funny exactly. you should
1: mention Hemingway uh, in opposition to Joyce because Hemingway—and that surprised the hell out of me—but he uh, congratulated Joyce on his book and he called it a a most goddamn wonderful book. That oh was yeah. The quote. And well, the book is you know as far away from Hemingway as you can get. Nineteen twenty-two, and then was it? The Sun Also Rises was 26, like yeah. four years later, so, mm-hmm.
2: you know, well, he didn't, you know. Well, I think, you know, another person who, who absolutely admired, especially the Molly Bloom monologue, was T.S. Eliot, okay? Another person I just mentioned who were seemed to be operating in a... In a Minimalist kind di- of way. Uh, yeah, in a different aesthetic, right. okay? But uh, they were, I think they were excited that something new... And unsettling was appearing, and it was. Besides that, it was really good. Okay, the way we feel sometimes about a new book that comes out that not only, not only uh, uh, shocks us in terms of style, but in content, but also is a great read.
0: Yeah, Eliot, I believe, uh, thought that this book, oh, this is really what I was trying to do with the wasteland, like uh, taking old myths and mm-hmm. show how they inform the present even while acknowledging that those myths have crumbled and are kind of useless now, but it's still part of you know, what makes us up. You had a good uh, quote from Hemingway Talking about Ulysses, I've got some. Uh, I've got a few quotes that I dug up from the internet. Uh, Virginia Woolf <laughs> called uh, Ulysses the work of a queasy undergraduate scratching his pimples. <laughs> um, I like that quote. Um, a little envy there, maybe. It's interesting, because she's when you talk about modernist writers who use stream-of-consciousness yeah. techniques, She, I think Joyce and Wolfe are the two... They're playing the same trade in many right, ways. Right? Yeah. Right. Both,
2: both right. the innovators at the same time. Right.
0: Yeah, and so well, she... Professional jealousy. Perhaps. Carl uh, Radick, a Soviet critic, called Ulysses a dung heap swarming with worms photographed by a movie camera through a microscope. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Too much vodka.
0: <laughs> the Dublin Review called, uh, I was talking about Joyce here, uh, a great Jesuit-trained intellect has gone over malignantly and mockingly to the powers of evil. Mm-hmm. And this is my favorite line. Uh, uh, this critic, American critic Arnold Bennett said, Anyone could have written the dailiest day possible, given sufficient time, paper, childish caprice, and obstinacy. When you finish the novel, you have the sensation of a general who has just put down an insurrection.
2: (laughs) That's really good. Okay. And I can sympathize with that response to Ulysses in some ways. Okay. Yeah.
0: Frank, when we were emailing earlier, like last month, and uh, you, you kind of gave me a little attitude like, okay, so you finished Ulysses. Like, what do you want, a cookie? Like, uh, it shouldn't be this thing like, I finished Ulysses, now I'm in this secret club and joined the ranks <laughs> of the fortunate. And you become a well snob. Well, I, I think
1: there's a yeah. mystique. Uh, yeah, yes yeah, snobbishness around it yeah. that is kind yeah. of itself forbidding. I think a lot of people give up because they think it's harder than it really is it's you Mm -hmm. know the the uh you have to be you know the badger and the grizzly uh you know the (laughs) the grizzly doesn't need to fight because every other creature runs away from the grizzly but when the grizzly runs into a badger the badger doesn't move (laughs) it refuses to move and in the end the grizzly walks away so you have to be the badger with this book you'll you'll get through it but don't be intimidated and and just think of it as um, you know, if you look for for comedy and if you look for sex, which a lot of people, I certainly do, um, you know, and of course the, the human aspects of, I, I find Stephen a little bit off-putting personally as a character. Well, I think right. <laughs> Leopold Bloom is, is maybe the best character I've ever read in all of fiction. He's just so lovable. I mean, he's such a, and flaw, he's so flawed, but he's, he's just a good guy, you know? He he's so knowledgeable. Of course, about eighty percent of what he knows is so, and the other twenty percent, he knows things that aren't, you know, that are not true. But he takes interest in everything. He loves, you know, the heavens, and he knows all the constellations, and he he can talk about anything. He's, he's a bit of a mansplainer, isn't he? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I suppose, but uh, anyway, I, I I thought. I mean the. Yeah, he's, also he's also, I remember the word now, he's also a lookist. Oh, lookist. A lookist. A lookist. Someone who stares at women. Oh, is that okay. I, I didn't know that, that. That's a term that, oh, lookism? That's the modern term. Why is that, that's the, the PC. Lookism, oh, right. Lookism. PC oh. description of the male gaze. Okay, that's talked about uh, well, so much these days.
0: You know, speaking of him just being a wonderful, decent guy, the first glimpse we have of him is he's...
1: Cooking breakfast for his wife mm. in bed. Ate with relish. What was the first sentence? Uh, Mr. Leopold Bloom ate with relish the inner organs no. of beasts and fowls, or something like that. He
0: liked the uriny tang yeah. of the
1: uh, <laughs> the kidneys. kidneys. Yeah, not yeah. very kosher there. Uh, no nope. Leopold. If, if but he's he not he, technically. He's not a Jew. His father was a Jew. Right. And he feels guilty for the suicide of his father because his father, who's a Hungarian Jew, uh, said, uh, you know, you've betrayed the faith of your fathers. And Leopold has converted twice, once to some Protestant, you know, denomination, and then to Catholicism. So he's betrayed the faith of his fathers twice, and his father killed himself after reproaching him for it like everything else, Leopold Bloom's Jewishness gets complicated it he, but he's not actually jewish yeah. Yeah. Right. that's the he and, and then he, he when he runs into the citizen, I love that bit. the mm-hmm. citizen throws what does he throw at him some heavy piece of metal or some right s- yeah. anyway, I'll brain you you know <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh the citizen representing like pure Ireland or something uh you know the anti-Semitism and then Blue goads him, you know, your savior was a Jew. And it's a wonderful part, I thought, of the book.
2: Yeah, th- it's interesting that Bloom is reminded very subtly again and again mm-hmm. number one, that he's Jewish, and number two, that his wife is sleeping with uh, Blazes, Blazes, Blazes Boylan. Boylan. Okay, he's reminded that very subtly throughout the book. It's kind of uh, a motif that, in a sense, holds the book together, creates Bloom himself. If I find
1: anything unlikable about him, is he's a little too obsequious or a little too self-effacing? Excuse me, pardon me, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he's too polite by half. Uh, you know he doesn't stand up for himself very much.
0: Yeah, you want him to be more. Well, if you're supposed to be Odysseus, yeah. why, why don't you be a little more
2: odysseus mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> That's the funny thing about the opening scene of. Uh, the first bloom section where he's eating the innards of animals and stuff like that. It's a really great description of uh, the Odyssey, I think. If you ever read Homer's Odyssey, okay, nobody ever in that whole book eats a vegetable, (laughs) but they are constantly eating meat and bread all the time. I remember in the Cyclops' cave there's cheese, too. Okay. Yeah. But one thing I remember as I read it, okay, after I finished reading The Odyssey, I, th- I thought back about it, and, you know.
0: Well, what about the lotus Nobody eaters?
2: Ha- eating lotus,
0: doesn't that count? It's uh, more
2: taking drugs than eating a vegetable, I suppose. Yeah, they, well, they weren't eating it for nutrition. They were eating it for the psychedelic experience, I suppose.
0: Uh, going back to you know, speaking of eating, Uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly, Frank, that you should not read this as a chore, like eating your broccoli because it's good for you, but it's not very pleasant. It's not like something that you hate doing, but you're glad when you're done, like running a marathon or, or climbing Mount Everest. But at the same time, it is a challenge, and like anything that's challenging, you get to the end, you feel like, Oh, I'm I'm glad I did that. But at its heart, you know, you should read any novel because of the feelings it engenders, it stirs, warmth, the humanity, the humaneness of Joyce's vision. You know, that's what draws us to
1: it. That's what makes people reread it, as you have several times. And like... The same as when you climb Everest, you need a Sherpa to help you. So if you're if you're lost in some part of the book where what am I reading? <laughs> I mean, you you can Google it and you'll find chapter and verse on everything oh. that that means and what what Joyce is actually doing, and that probably should pique your interest. Oh oh, I, I didn't see that. At, wow, that's amazing. He's doing that, you know. And yeah, I think that yeah, there are several works out there. The so. Blooms Blooms.
0: Bloomsday Companion, there's online, there's the Joyce Project, which has all the text of the novel with uh, links, uh, explanations throughout. Mm. Uh, so there's there's tons of resources out there. For myself, over the past few months, I admit, uh, I did a quick like literal summaries from Sparknotes, and then After finishing an episode, I'd read some uh, commentary from a number of uh, different sources. A few I read before reading the literal summary. Some I read the literal summary before. I kind of experimented with different approaches. There's no one way to do it. If you manage to find a great professor who can lead you through it, I I would love to take a class on it now uh, after (laughs) having read it once you know it's a a giant forest and there's more than one path through it
2: yeah I think you have to read it uh, for the sheer joy of the prose in fact one way to think about it is that this is just a humongous prose poem rather than Mm -hmm. a novel the last time I read Moby Dick I decided I'm not going to read this as a novel because I know what happens. Okay, I know the story. I've read it before. And I decided I'm going to read it as just a sequence of prose poems, chapter by chapter, just enjoy that. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I really liked it a lot more than I had ever liked it before, uh, not forcing myself to have to see the big picture, but uh, the parts that I've enjoyed the most... Uh, reading in Ulysses have been the parts where I just sat down and said oh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna read this and enjoy it get a kick out of it for a while. Again the Mali Bloom monologue is you know excellent for that that sort of thing.
0: You know, we're sitting here in in Busan, South Korea. Of course a work as renowned as Ulysses has been translated into several languages. It's been translated into Korean could you imagine <laughs> how do you do that? Of course, Shakespeare has been translated into numerous languages, mm-hmm. and you, th- you, you think of how much is lost. Y- you must lose so much reading Ulysses in, in another language, especially uh, you know non-Western language like Korean. It just boggles the mind how you would translate this. Well,
1: just to go back to the episode in the, in the hospital... How do you do right. nine, are there nine, you know, uh, uh, stages of Korean that you go from the Chinese, you start with the Chinese, and then you progressively go to the modern Korean?
0: Impossible.
1: Cannot right. be done. Right. Okay. You know,
0: uh, a student of mine who, a brilliant student, went on, uh, she's currently getting a Ph.D. in astrophysics at Stanford. I love Joyce. And uh, mm-hmm. actually went to some meetings of the Joyce <coughs> Society up in Seoul. This young Korean teenage girl and a bunch of starchy old Ajushi professors. She said she wants to be the first Korean to translate, or first person to translate Finnegans Wake into Korean.
1: Oh.
0: <laughs> and I said, "Well, uh, you're going to have to translate it into, into English, English first, English first, first, first. right?" <laughs> <And then laughs>
2: You'll have to be the first Korean to read it before you translate it, probably. I don't know how many people... Yeah, so
0: maybe that is a good point to sort of wrap up the show here, looking forward to uh, a book that is Ulysses on steroids in terms of difficulty and density and strangeness, uh, seemingly not even written in English. I've read parts, I've listened to parts, I've listened to this famous parts of Joyce reading it, which is quite amazing. Perhaps the topic of a further podcast? We'll see. I'd like to thank you guys very much. Uh, this was a blast. It's inspired me to... I'm going to go back and reread the whole thing right now. Th- tonight. Once tomorrow, a yeah. We're recording this on May 15th. We're about a month before Bloomsday. Hopefully we can get this uh, packaged, wrapped up, edited, and released before then. Uh, That would be fortuitous timing. It's a day that there are are joycean celebrations all over, uh, certainly. Dublin, um, for sure. Dublin, but also in America. Um, Oh, I'm
2: sure all over New York City, I'm sure. The The
0: actual manuscript is in the Rosenbach Rare Book Museum in Philadelphia. And you can actually go and see a few pages of the handwritten manuscript, I believe, from the first chapter. I remember Snot Green Sea, seeing that written mm-hmm. down in mm-hmm. Joyce's own handwriting, which is scrotum pretty
1: cool. Tightening the scrotum tightening scene. Scrotum tightening scene.
0: yes. Perfect. I always <laughs> think of that when I jump into cold <laughs> yeah. water. Yeah. So thank you, Frank Beecher. Thank you, Bob perchin This has been Tales of Braving Ulysses on the Liquid Arts Podcast Network. Thank you all for listening. Okay, thanks, Steve.
1: Thanks, Steve.